0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good, I guess. Uh, We have a guest this week. It is James Kay. He is the judge executive in Woodford County. Uh, He's been in public service for about eight years. He spent three, well, I guess two and a half terms in the Kentucky House of Representatives, then transitioned to the Woodford County Courthouse. Woodford County, of course, has been talked about quite a bit on this podcast as a a COVID success story. uh, Very high vaccination rate, often has a very low infection rate. So we talked to him about, you know, leading public health as a as an elected leader in Woodford County and we talked to him a bit about serving as the judge executive in Woodford County I don't think we've ever had a judge executive on before Jasmine so it was good to talk to him first of all just because we like Woodford County and second of all just to to talk to somebody on that level of government to kind of learn a little bit more about how it works I, I mean I learned a lot how about you
1: yeah, I definitely did. It was it was really cool to hear him talk about Woodford County's COVID response and you know what their health department has done and how they've gotten people to buy in. And it was a really good conversation, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, county level government has all kinds of people across the state of Kentucky, and some of them do a really really great job, and some of them don't do quite as well and and I think James K in Woodford County it, just like most things with Woodford County just is a paragon of how it can be done mm-hmm. uh, if it's well supported. So glad to have him on, glad to talk to him about that. So we'll get to that after the rest of the show, but we are going to be basically doing the same show that we did last week. Where we're going to be talking about COVID and how it's kind of, you know, still around, still hanging around, still pretty bad here in Kentucky. And then Jasmine's going to talk to us about the special session, which ended just about a day after our show last week. So we're just going to wrap up everything that happened there, and then we have a few quick hits. So without any further ado, let's jump into COVID. So Jasmine, Kentucky's case numbers do appear slightly declining from last week. We're definitely not going up still. We're not going up past our peak. But, you know, it's getting kind of confusing. They were down. They were back up. Today was a really, really bad day, like 5,300 cases, one of the fifth works one of the five worst days for COVID in the entire pandemic. But it's on the heels of some days that were better than weeks prior. So, you know, when we when we updated last week, there was a little bit of an artificial low due to Labor Day. And I think that, you know, we've kind of priced that in now. And as, as we go along, hopefully we see declining case numbers. but But we'll see. Bashir pointed out that even though cases have decreased our test positivity rate has actually gone up. This is a pretty concerning metric, you know, and, and it did kind of bear out because today was a pretty bad day's worth of cases. But I think there's a few things working against us here. the the prevalence of those at home tests, is something, you know, we're not getting as many of the negatives or positives that are that are coming out. So using the test positivity is maybe not as accurate as it had been in the past. And additionally, it's a little bit harder to get tested now than yeah. it has been in the past. Um, I had a little bit of a scare a couple of weeks ago and really had trouble finding either an at-home test that I could buy or a test that I could schedule. So
1: Yeah, I would say it's much harder than yeah. it was before. Like, I was getting tested pretty often in 2020 because I had to go into work and sometimes go to the jail. And it was so easy. I scheduled at the same place almost every time I got results in 24 hours. And the testing appointments are very scarce. (laughs) Yeah, there's point. a
0: couple of healthcare providers that are still kind of doing it the old way. But one of the things I think we're really missing are the government-run test centers, both in the federal yeah. and the state level. Um, you know, that was how I scheduled a test uh, basically throughout 2020 whenever I needed one. But you know, here in 2021, have not been able to do that. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, while I'm glad that there's some healthcare providers that are doing that, uh, I don't think it's as easy or as prevalent as it was. So yeah, looking at that test positivity metric, you know, um, it de- it definitely did pour. Uh, a little bit of an increase this week um, but but we'll see how accurate it is going forward. Right now, there's only one Orange County in Kentucky, but but several counties have seen significant decreases in case rates. So I last time I looked at the map was Tuesday, yesterday. Um, Rockcastle County is was the only county with more than 200 cases per 100,000 population. Whereas you know a couple weeks ago we were looking at like several, like five or six, maybe even seven, eight, nine, ten counties that had more than 200 cases per 100,000. The hottest parts of the state have stayed pretty constant. We, we are still looking at southeastern Kentucky and, and the western coalfields. Uh, you know, southeastern Kentucky has nearly two dozen counties with between 100 and 150 cases per 100,000. Uh, and the western coalfields have about half a dozen counties in that same category. That's still really bad. Those places are still really, really hard hit in a really, really bad shape. But those places were, were a lot higher. You know, They were at 200 cases per 100,000 not too long ago. Um, As of last Monday, Louisville saw its second week of sustained decreases in in COVID cases. Louisville's down to 2,900 cases. uh, And and it really appears that the peak in Louisville is two weeks ago at 3,900. Now, if this holds, that would mean that Louisville and Jefferson County never did reach the winter peak, which I think is very good. You know, we were a lot of places across the state have really eclipsed that winter peak in terms of the number of cases. But Louisville, you know, we got really close. Uh, But I think the prevalence of vaccines and uh, you know just mitigation measures really was able to cut the top off the Delta Delta increase that so many other places had. So Louisville deaths have also started decreasing, uh, and and it also that's a huge sign because it's possible that the current increases in cases only resulted in a maximum of of 29 weekly deaths, and that's a lot. And it's really tragic if if you had a family member or somebody you knew was in that 29. But it's worth mentioning that in the winter. 60 people died during a few weeks, I mean, more than one were over 50. I, I, I mean, we were talking about four or five weeks that were more than 50 deaths. So you know, if that was our peak, and you know, our case peak was uh, just about the same as the winter, that really shows that that, you know, vaccines really do matter in terms of defeating uh, COVID when it comes to death. Uh, you know, Daniel DeRocher is the reporter from the Lexington herald Leader, skipped town, now he works in Kansas City, and he was the person that was maintaining a really great dashboard for Fayette County, and he is no longer doing that. So I'm stuck using the Fayette County Health Departments, which, <laughs> again, are just those images, and I cannot tell you the exact number, but Fayette County does appear to be seeing a decrease, uh, and, and it also appears as though Fayette County did not reach its winter peak either. The hospitalization metrics are nowhere near as happy as the case rates, even though the case rates are a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, The hospitalization rate has yet to start decreasing. That's very troubling because cases are very high. We are at a peak, and while it does look like we probably have leveled off, we need to really start decreasing because there is so much stress on our healthcare system. And, uh, you know, we are in real danger of some really bad outcomes for lots of things if we don't start seeing the hospitalizations go down for COVID. So our vaccination effort does show some signs of slowing down, and that's not great. Looking at our 14-day average, which accounts uh, for some of the odd reporting around Labor Day, you know, our seven-day average has been all over the place, up and down, because we missed a few days, and then we priced in a few other days, so, you know, we had, uh, it's weird. Anyways, don't look at the seven-day metrics. The 14-day average accounts for some of that, uh, and, and it's kind of moved from about 7,500, which, wh- which is where it was at for several weeks, and it's down to about 6,700, that's that's bad there are a lot of reasons this could be the case uh, one of my theories is that we're running out of people to vaccinate in the counties where our current campaigns are working well um, looking at the population of people who've gotten one dose who are more than 12 years old so that is people who are eligible to get the vaccine Franklin and woodford counties are at 88 and 87 percent so we're having James k on the show uh, to talk about Woodford county I mean if you talk about the people who are who are you know able to under the FDA's rules to get the vaccine, there's only like 11% of people left in Woodford County who are able to wow. get it. Um, so those are the people, obviously, who've been responding really well to the current campaigns. Uh, and, you know, there's just not many of them left. Uh, Fayette and Boone County uh, are are also above 80%. So that's something to celebrate as well. Perry Harden, Anderson, Kenton, Scott, Campbell, and Boone are all above 70%. And Jefferson is too. I forgot to put us in there. So, you know, 70%, pretty good in terms of, I, I mean, I think that that was kind of more along the lines of what I was thinking whenever vaccines first came out, that we would have about 30% of people that would be really resistant to vaccines. And that's about the population left who hasn't got it, who is eligible to get it. So so that's that's what we're looking at here. You know, we have some seen some significant increases in vaccinations in other places that have not yet even achieved a 50% vaccination rate. You know, Eastern Kentucky has a few. Johnson, McGoffin, and Breathitt County are all uh, have really significant rises in vaccine vaccinations over the past couple months. So I, I, I think that that might mean that whatever the new uh, messaging that we have around vaccines is kind of starting to take hold. So that's good. Uh, let's hope it keeps up and that those places in eastern Kentucky, which are being hit so hard by COVID, will have some protection there for them. I did want to kind of shout out something I saw in the Herald Leader. Uh, an Ohio Valley wrestling match in Clay County is going to feature a wrestler getting his vaccine during intermission. Uh, and and there will also be a drawing for fans who, who get vaccinated at the match. You know, this is one of those efforts in Clay County that's been put together by Robert Stivers, um, the Senate president who, you know, this is a better idea in my opinion than a pizza party. That's let's hope it works out. Let's see, uh, if the folks there in Clay County, which is one of the most hard hit places in Kentucky, uh, do, do get their vaccine.
1: Yeah. I was actually, if you didn't already know about this, I was going to tell you about it because I heard about it on Kentucky Sports Radio because Matt Jones is a, an owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling, and he talked about that. And he said that you know while the one wrestler is going to get vaccinated in front of everyone else, there are a bunch of other wrestlers that are also going to get vaccinated at the event. So I think this is a really good idea, and I think it'll be interesting to see you know if a lot of people decide to get vaccinated from attending an event like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a crazy story, uh, just kind of off-topic slightly, about uh, Matt Jones and um, Ohio Valley Wrestling. Do you know who his partner was when he bought OVW?
1: Craig Greenberg, Craig I think.
0: Greenberg, yeah, somebody else who gets talked about on the show quite a bit. <laughs> so, yes, uh, a potential future mayor, owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling. There you go. Um, okay, so... You know, Jasmine, you're going to get to the special se- session here in a second, but uh, a bit of a spoiler alert the uh, legislature decided to re- remove the statewide mask mandate for schools, and that forced the individual school districts to kind of decide whether or not to enforce a mandate on their own. You know, I- uptake of the mandate has been significantly better than when fo- school first went into session. But it is kind of clear that the places where mask mandates are in effect are, are kind of the places where vaccines are already in heavy use. And, or I, will, I would think that we can now switch that to say the reverse. The places that still haven't instituted a mask mandate are places where COVID is ravaging uh, the, the, the community the worst. Um, yeah, you know, local governments have to take this uh, pandemic seriously and the ones that aren't are facing serious, you know, case increases. And those are also kind of the places that don't have mask mandates. The school board association, the Kentucky School Board Association, has been tracking which districts have mask mandates. Wednesday morning, 64% of school districts have implemented mask mandates, and I saw they just updated it before we started recording, and I think it's up to 71%. So, I mean, when we when we were first talking about this, when school went into session, it was very, very few. I mean, there were, like, mm-hmm. just double digits, like barely double digits, like 10 or 11 school districts that had, uh, you know, mask mandates, and, you know, we're getting close to you know, uh, 75% of all school districts, which is a lot more. So that's, that's good. I think that that's good. I'm glad that uh, school districts are, are being brave and, and doing the right thing there. JCPS, which is, of course, the biggest school district in the state, they voted to actually implement a vaccine mandate on Tuesday. Uh, It's a bit of a mandate. You know, there's a testing option where you can get tested like once every week or something like that might be every two weeks. Um, But I I think most people will probably take the vaccine option. And and just talking to some friends who are teachers, uh, this, this is something that's really needed on the staff. I mean, I know that a lot of the security guards the administration personnel the the kind of the folks that that uh are the staff there at the school there uh there there's been some significant absences which is really kind of throwing a wrench into trying to operate these schools for the first time full time in, in two years so you know um we'll we'll see what happens in j c p s and and then of course on the federal level Joe Biden announced last week that the entire country is going to be given a pretty significant mandate with all employers of more than 100 employees being required to implement some sort of testing regime or required vaccinations so uh you know that's coming and and that'll be done through OSHA and we'll see how that impacts Kentucky as well I think that that's something that's likely to have a big impact here in terms of our vaccination rate at least I hope so Kentucky continues to be one of the worst places in COVID right now in the entire United States. I think uh, I saw today that basically only Tennessee is, is worse than us,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and six six of the ten worst counties are in Kentucky.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they're mostly down there in southeastern Kentucky. And again, though, those places that's kind of made the news. I think I saw a couple of news stories about that. They're better than they were. Uh, is something to to mention. You know, a lot of those mm-hmm. really bad counties are actually on their way down. Uh, you know, it, it, this pandemic has come for every area of the country at one time or another it really started in the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast, and it got hit really, really hard. I mean, there's been, I remember when it was like really bad in the Dakotas, really bad in Michigan, really bad in the Carolinas, really bad in Texas, really bad in Florida, really bad in Missouri and Arkansas, you know, uh, <laughs> New York, New York was one of Early the first on. places that was the, I mean, of course, kind of where it started, uh, you know, this is Kentucky's time in the barrel. Uh, we are really facing it right now. Uh, but, but we know what it it takes and we know what we need to do to, to get better. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like everybody that listens to this show, uh, has (laughs) at least thought about getting vaccinated or has gotten vaccinated, but, but, you know, talk to your people that haven't and, and we really need those people to get vaccinated right now, uh, wear your mask when you can and, and just be as careful as possible. Uh, yeah, my, my sister came down with COVID, uh, I, I think she has it right now, actually, uh, but she's vaccinated, uh, so so you know it's nothing to worry about. Uh, but it is very frustrating and it's very scary, mm-hmm. you know, to have a family member that that's dealing with it. So, you know, it's uh, it's just part of it. So, any 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 COVID stories from you this week, Jasmine?
1: No, I don't think I have any.
0: All right, very good. Well, tell us what we need to know about the special session.
1: All right, so. The special session's already over, <laughs> obviously, so I thought that we would just go through you know, what the legislature passed. It, it all happened very fast, so I feel like it was kind of easy to miss um, what passed, what didn't, and what happened. So first is House Joint Resolution 1. This was just the resolution that extends the state of emergency and does a couple other Um, non-controversial things like allowing for agencies to have like remote meetings and things like that. This had already passed at the beginning of the special session before we recorded last week. So we already talked about that one, but that one was signed by the governor. Next is Senate Bill 1. This is the education bill that would ban the mask mandate, um, but would also add 20 remote learning days It would create a test to stay program and allow flexibility for hiring like retired teachers. It also contained a provision that I didn't mention last week about allowing uncertified teachers to teach home hospital. Home hospital is a program for children that are medically fragile for like that cannot be in a school setting um, to be able to learn at home and the reason I mentioned this is because at the JCPS school board meeting last night, the superintendent, Marty Polio, expressed that he isn't sure that it will jive with federal protections for students with disabilities. So yeah, that was something interesting in the bill that we didn't talk about.
0: Yeah, that is interesting.
1: So Senate Bill 1 passed the Senate 28 to 8 and it passed the House 70 to 25 after, like we talked about last week, it initially didn't pass out a committee. The committee met again later in the day and voted for it and it easily passed. And then the pa- the house passed it 70 to 25. Um, only two Republicans in the Senate voted against it, Alice Forge Kerr. And I note that because she's not Running for re-election. Right. Um, and Brandon Smith also voted against it and said he didn't think it included um, enough flexibility with the 20 remote learning days. And last week, we talked about the confusion around like what the 20 remote learning days m- meant. And like we weren't even sure about it. And it does s- seem that it is 20 remote learning days per district. And so a county that only has a couple school buildings, they're going to have more flexibility than JCPS or Fayette County, who has a lot of school buildings. (laughs) And it's going to be hard to divvy those days up.
0: Yeah, to me, this just really reeked of non I mean just you clearly weren't even considering what might happen in Fayette or Jefferson County yeah uh when you're passing something like this like this at this point is is basically irrelevant to JCPS there's no way I mean what are they gonna are they they gonna like I don't know it just doesn't make any sense for us at all uh yeah
1: and I think I mean I the bans on mask mandates are, are probably the worst thing that came out of this but I I think that Along with that, this is like the the biggest failure of the special session. Like, The governor had to do this because the legislature tied school districts' hands by keeping them from doing NTI. We had a special session to give them that flexibility after seeing how many districts were in quarantine after just a few weeks into the school year, days into the school year, and this is... What they came up with—that's really frustrating to yeah, me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, and and Jasmine, you mentioned uh, that Senator Forgy Curran and Senator Smith voted against it. Killian Timoney is the only person in the House who voted against it. Yeah, He's a Republican. Yeah, uh, who was? I mean, you know, interestingly enough, they ended up not needing his vote, but voted against it in committee, and then changed his vote to get it to the floor just to vote against mm-hmm. it. So, right you know, there, you go.
1: All right. um, Bashir issued a line item veto of the bill, which was the ban on mask mandates, but it was overridden on late, late on Thursday night, Um, though there was a question about whether he could even issue a line item veto for this bill. But they kind of just passed over that and just went ahead and overrode it anyways. It was it was approaching midnight (laughs) quickly. The,
0: The path of least resistance. Yeah.
1: Um, The bill also passed with a committee substitute that removed language about vaccine incentives. um, And then it changed some language about rehires and hiring critical shortage teachers. And, you know, this was the bill where tons of floor amendments from both caucuses had been filed, um, but they all failed. They, you know, the legislature didn't suspend, didn't vote to suspend the rules to hear the floor amendments.
0: Right. Yeah. The uh, I think the retired teachers thing is going to be I I think that that's kind of an underrated part of this bill.
1: Yeah, I th- I think it's one of the better parts of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's really going to allow for a significant amount of flexibility for a lot of school districts. I, I, it is kind of a hassle if you want to go back into the the classroom as a retired teacher, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, but be, but allowing teachers to go in and, and not have it impact their pension you know, calculation and and allowing the school districts to do it without any kind of penalty. I, I, you know, I've just heard so much about really, really awful stories about teachers just like walking out of the classroom and not coming back.
1: Yeah. And also like substitute shortages and things like that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, so hopefully, you know, that that's able to address a little bit of that. So Mm -hmm. so that's good.
1: All right. That's Senate Bill one. Senate Bill two would ban prohibitions on visitation at nursing homes in, it would increase testing and also create monoclonal antibody clinics. This one passed the Senate 28 to 10. Um, Senators Matt Castlin and Adrian Southworth were the Republicans that voted against that bill, and it passed the House 69 to 24. Um, Bashir issued a line item veto of this one as well, but that was easily overridden. This one passed with a committee substitute for... Um, any administrative order issued by a local public health department requiring an immu- immuniz- uh, immunization during a p- epidemic, in- it must include exemptions for um, religious grounds and consciously held beliefs. So mm, that language is in there. <laughs> this bill also had floor amendments filed from both parties. Um, this is the one we talked about this last week that had many... Floor amendments filed by Adrian Southworth, but again, they didn't vote su- to suspend the rules. So none of those floor amendments were voted on.
0: I'm sure they were all very wacky amendments. So
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Senate Bill 3 is the bill that would appropriate ARPA funds. Um, it passed unanimously in the Senate and 84 to 8 in the House. And it was all Republicans that voted against it in the House. And so that one w- was signed into law by the governor. Um, Savannah Maddox had filed an amendment to this one to prevent companies with vaccine mandates from getting the funding. And that amendment failed also. House Bill 4 and Senate Bill 4. Um, this was the bill that would prevent the General Assembly from getting compensated during like veto days. Um This bill stalled, though, after concerns that it was outside the scope of the call for the special session. So that one didn't pass.
0: They ended up not needing it, I don't think. And and they just held it open. Anyways, it didn't seem like Andy Boucher was willing wanting to play that game anyway.
1: Exactly. Lastly is Senate Bill 5. So this was the Hardin County Economic Development Project. And so this bill appropriates $350 million in forgivable loans from the Kentucky Economic Development Project. Finance Authority, ten point six million to pay a loan related to a Hardin County property, and then fifty million for various training grants and programs. This one passed the Senate thirty-two to three. The three votes against it were Republicans um, Hornback, Schickel, and Southworth. And then it passed the House ninety-one to two. And Savannah Maddox and Lynn Beckler were the ones who voted against that one.
0: Yeah, Paul Hornback is is usually willing to to you know go go along to get along, but he's also retiring from the Senate this year, mm-hmm. and he, I, I thought that his comments, you know, I don't get I I don't agree with Paul Hornback on much, but I felt like I kind of agreed with him. He kind of said a lot of the same things that I said. Uh, last week in terms of like you know giving this money to something where we don't know what it is is kind of funky he, he yeah. had some other kind of criticisms about like you know other people would be disadvantaged because they built it without incentives i I think that that's fair like I I kind of mm-hmm. feel like it is a little bit about uh picking favorites but but I, I I think there's a way to have done this that would have been better and, and I understand that not every company wants you know they they kind of can make demands, and you have to meet them. Uh, but yeah, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm still not super clear about it. I, I still hope it's not like a AR-15 factory or something. Uh, and and they're just <laughs> we don't we don't know that it's not yet. You yeah. Know? So so that's that is what it is.
1: Yeah. So the legislature did not get to uh, Ralph. Alvarado's Senate Joint Resolution 3 or any of his alternative versions of bills. Um, So they actually passed SJR 3 in the Senate, um, but it stalled in the House. And so that resolution would have recognized a positive antibody test as the equivalent of full vaccination. So good that that died
0: <laughs> yeah yeah uh i agree that's probably something Rand paul would have been a big fan of uh i'm glad that the house decided to kill that one I, you know just in case anybody is curious you know getting vaccinated increases the amount of antibodies you have like like 50 times versus natural immunity so it's just definitely worth it for you to get vaccinated even if you've had the disease before and it's really just not the same thing
1: mm-hmm late thursday Senate Republicans asked Bashir to amend his call to hear Alvarado's Senate Bill 8, which would um, put some of the federal funds towards retention and recruitment of nurses, nurses' aides, and other respiratory therapists and other critical care personnel. Um, But Bashir declined to do so. You know, I, I, I do think that, like, retaining healthcare personnel and fixing those shortages is important, but I don't really know how I feel about whether he should have amended the call. What do you think, Robert?
0: I I think it was pretty clear that there was a lot of negotiation going on ahead of time in terms of Andy Bashir saying what he wanted to get done in, Mm -hmm. uh, the special session. And this wasn't, I mean, this wasn't part of it. And, and that's, you know, the Andy Bashir negotiates, uh, he doesn't do like we've talked before it's not really like a handshake deal it's much more of like a very specific uh we have to talk talk about exactly what we want before we move forward and yeah i think if you're dealing with somebody like Anibish you need to be really clear ahead of time what you want and if this is something they wanted they should have brought it up beforehand you know we are facing some pretty pretty significant shortages uh we needed to probably do something about that but uh we probably should have decided that before we got started in on on this session and and you know
1: yeah and this was this was like close to midnight on Thursday night.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I would have kept the session going a little bit longer and who knows what would have happened if they'd have kept it longer open longer than they did. There's a lot of bad stuff that could have happened. That's for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think that's the, the worry with amending the call too. So, but after the session ended, Bashir used a football analogy when he was talking about how it went and said that the legislature punted when it became the pandemic's quarterback. Um, he said, I've been willing to make the calls, to take the hits, to make the plays, and the legislature asked to go in at quarterback, and what did they do? They punted on first down.
0: Sounds like the Vikings-Mingles game over the weekend. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, let's not talk about that, Robert.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So the special session is over. And so before we close, Robert, I just wanted to ask what your thoughts were about it.
0: Yeah. You know, it could have been a lot worse, I guess is probably the most optimistic way to put it. Like they didn't say that like we're immediately giving COVID to like everybody in Kentucky or uh, in a more serious way. They didn't like ban mask mandates. They didn't, you know, ban vaccine incentives. They didn't do, uh, you know, Uh, A lot of the things that have gone into place in places like Florida and and, and Texas, which which are really, really harmful – um, but at the same time, they definitely didn't do what needed to be done to protect Kentucky and, and Kentucky was in a better place before the special session happened. It, when Governor Bashir was in full control of pandemic response, we were responding to the pandemic. And since the legislature gave themselves power to you know legislate away those powers that Governor Bashir has, we are worse off. They could have made it they could have made it much much worse than they did. So I'm glad they didn't. But we are in a worse place now than we were two weeks ago. And and, and that's just I mean, uh, the you can see it right in that map that the Kentucky School Board Association has. It used to be every county, every school district in Kentucky had a mask mandate. All of those kids were protected. And now it's not the case. Only 71 percent of school districts have mask mandates. And, and that's, you know, I'm glad they stepped up to do it. But but it used to be better than it was. What about you, Jasmine? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. I was. I was pretty disappointed. I think for some reason I was hopeful that after the loss at the Supreme Court, when the governor issued the call for a special session that maybe he'd had since he was issuing a call, I thought he might have had a good compromise with Republicans. And and it is a compromise, I guess on a lot of levels because there are some real, some good things in these bills, but I, I don't know. I thought they might leave the mask mandate for schools in place, um, and that's clear. It's really disappointing that they didn't. Um, but it's also a little disappointing to me that they didn't work out some of the kinks in these bills, like the twenty remote learning days per district and, and things like that. They could have, they could have been a lot better had they put in more time and didn't like rush through them. Um, So I I am a little disappointed, but there are definitely things that good things that, came from the bills, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you're exactly right about the 20 remote learning days being a, an exam, example example of, of the worst parts of this special session. I mean, because you had Louisville legislators that were just saying, this is not going to work for JCPS. This is not going to work. We cannot do anything like this uh, and make it make sense. And yeah, that basically fell in deaf ears and they just ignored it. They chose to ignore it instead of fixing it for you know, uh, JCPS has probably one in five students in the entire state, and and that's unfortunate that they decided to go that direction. So, yep. All right. Well, that was a special session, uh, Jasmine. Thanks for all that information. Uh, I felt like I followed it pretty closely, and yet I still learned things. So thanks for all of that. Uh, a couple of quick hits before we get out of here. Workers at Heaven Hill and Bardstown have voted a strike over a new scheduling plan that the company wanted to implement in the new contract. So I, the, from my reading of it, workers had been required to work weekends during the pandemic, which was something new. They had not been required to do that before. Uh, and basically, the company wants to add that to the, the regular contract and uh, wants to keep that in place. Um, The workers did not want to do that and didn't feel like the deal they were getting was fair. Um, So they're going on strike. So both sides do continue to talk, but solidarity to the workers, uh, and, and I hope they get what they're asking for. And if that means no working on the weekends, I hope it means that that's what they get. Uh, the only other quick hit I had was also that EMW Surgical Center, which is Kentucky's uh, one of Kentucky's last two abortion clinics, had a, a safety zone placed around it on Wednesday. Uh, the 10-foot safety zone prevents patients and partners from being touched by protesters who often harass people entering the building. There's a really significant fight in the Metro Council for several gears. Big, big thanks to Cassie Chambers Armstrong and Ja'Cory Arthur for pushing this through. There's a little bit of drama about this happening, uh, yesterday, which was Tuesday. They put it, they striped the, uh, the part that they put the, the safety zone in place, uh, and then they got rid of it and everybody kind of thought it might've been vandalism, but it was really that they, uh, made the lines too far apart from one another. So, um, glad, glad it wasn't vandalized on day one. Uh, but, uh, you know, but it's there now and, and, and that's really what matters. So good news there. Did you have any quick hits jazz? Um, the only one,
1: that I can think of is that Kelly Flood yeah. announced that she would not be running for yeah. re-election.
0: Yes, uh, Kelly Flood, one of my favorites. Uh, I, I, whenever she announced her, uh, whenever she put her announcement on uh, social media, I said, you know, um, I haven't voted for that many uh, state reps in my life, but I've always been g- glad that Kelly or Kelly Flood is on that list. Um, that is a district a little bit like. Louisville's the 34th here in Louisville where there are a lot of Democrats who do a lot of really good things so you know Kelly Kelly Flood has been an amazing representative for more than a decade Um, but I'm I'm kind of excited to see who, who comes up next. And, and I'm sure there'll be a really exciting and dynamic person, a great addition to the House of Representatives. So we'll see who that is. But best of luck to, to Kelly Flood as she moves on to whatever is next. I guess she's, uh, you know, in her Unitarian ministry that she does there. Um, so good for her. All right, let's get to our interview with James K.
1: James K. is the judge executive in Woodford County. He was first elected to this position in 2018 after winning election to the Kentucky House of Representatives three times. Woodford County has consistently had one of the highest COVID vaccination rates in Kentucky. We've talked about that several times on the podcast. And throughout most of the pandemic, they've also had one of the lower infection rates as well. So, James K., welcome to my old Kentucky podcast.
2: Hey, thank you all for having me.
0: Yeah, we're very excited to share this time with you. So, you know, along with, uh, is Franklin your neighbor? I don't know. They're, they're very close. Yeah. Right? Woodford and Franklin. Okay, so uh, along with Franklin County, which has Frankfurt, Woodford County uh, has a COVID-19 vaccination rate that's significantly higher than the rest of the entire state. So, you know, we've talked at length, many counties are struggling to achieve that 50% vaccination rate, and Woodford County is approaching like 75%. So uh, tell us, how has Woodford County been able to achieve, you know, this level of vaccination?
2: Yeah, so, you know, the, these things really matter uh, who's in your county. And, and we have a lot of great people in Woodford County, but but we've set the tone, uh, not only in county government, from but from our health department leadership from the very beginning of the pandemic, that we were going to take it seriously, uh, that we were going to provide our citizens with unbiased, uh, open data and information from our health department. And I think we've built a level of trust with our citizens that we're not trying to push an agenda, a political agenda. We're, we're simply trying to get through this in the best way to keep people healthy, keep our schools open, keep our economy open, and uh, keep people safe, healthy, and alive. So I think people have bought in.
0: So you mentioned your public health department there. Uh, you know, that's obviously, those are, those are professional people that work with the government no matter who they are, and you're obviously an elected official. Tell us a little bit about that relationship. You know, how have you been able to work with those professional folks to provide the leadership that you guys need to make sure that Woodford County stays safe?
2: So, Robert, I didn't know this, um, but the judge executive typically serves as the chair of the Board of Health. I knew that the former judge executive, uh, a guy named John Bear Coyle, did that before me, but that opportunity was kind of presented itself, and they are like, do you want to be the chair of the Board of Health? This is 2019 pre-pandemic. Yeah, sure. Of course. I love to run meetings. I like to have a gavel. Yeah, I'll be the chair. in <laughs> a global pandemic. Uh, and I, I actually am very fortunate that I was in that position because it really helped Mary County government and our health department, and we were on the same page. And we worked really closely with our cities. So all of our local governments and our health department were hand in hand from day one. Our health department held a COVID-19 meeting. It was a coronavirus meeting in early January of 2020. That was well before it was on the radar. And, and people were like, are we, are we really worried about this? And you know, ironically, we're like, nah, but if it happens, right? And so um, we are really blessed here to have a top-notch public health director. Her name is Cassie Prather. She has come up the public health ladder. She started at the very bottom of the totem pole. Now she's a health director. And um, she, she had epidemiological training. She has done contact tracing. She's done everything you can do in a health department. So she knew, when this happened, how to jump on it and tackle it, and get the public uh, braced and ready to to fight a pandemic?
0: Yeah, that's awesome, uh, and and you know that's a that I, I've been consistently impressed with. Uh, the performance of Kentucky's county health departments throughout this, and I will say though, uh, Kentucky does have a fair share of leaders in the political sphere, both in the legislature and at the county level across the state, who you know have been caught spouting misinformation and lies about COVID nineteen. But but I do think it's fair to say that just about everybody who's a leader in the state uh, are at least encouraging people to get vaccinated. But uh, the folks in Woodford County, like you mentioned, you know you have some good folks who are actually listening. Uh, You know, tell us what you guys as leaders in Woodford County have done to build and maintain like that trust in government that seems to have eroded in so many other places.
2: Well, I appreciate you letting me tell that story because, again, it, it began with that January meeting and everybody got on the same page. And then our emergency management, so that's under county government, that kicked in. We were the one of the very first counties to declare an emergency. We started marshalling our resources we um, set up the, the health department to be a uh, headquarters for all things pandemic response. And, you know, everybody at the beginning, if you remember, thought, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. So we thought we'll be out of this in a month or two. And, and the best part about, about that is, is we've just expanded that footprint. And so the, the health director and myself, we went on Facebook Live uh, in person at the time, and we had a, our first update to the community. We have done those every week and sometimes biweekly. For example, we announced the first case. We announced our first death, unfortunately, but we brought all this information to our citizens in real time. And each week we would talk about the case counts, but we would be very, very, there was no editorializing. We didn't insert our own opinions. We just talked about what we knew. And and one of the things you learn about it as a county judge is that you have so much more information that people don't know. So the more that you can share that information, they realize like you're not keeping it from them, you're not twisting it, you're not spinning it, you're just, you're just sharing that with the public. So we were one of the first counties to give free masks to all citizens. When we made masks free, that, that brought down that level of, so, some, of the, some of the politics of it just seemed to be diffused because anybody could go to our health department and get a KNN95 mask or a, a cloth mask made by our detention center. Our detention center, which is a a subdivision of county government, made 75,000 masks for our citizens, for other jails, for everywhere. So we had all this buy-in and support. We were doing these weekly updates. We're providing daily case counts and daily information through the health department. Through the county government's facebook page um we were the first county to go on zoom and do one of our meetings so so we we really set the tone that we were going to take it serious and that we were going to try to save lives from the very beginning and um thankfully people bought in and i give the credit to the community on that but but we also were listening and understanding that a lot of folks in the political sphere reacted as they normally would and they got very political well, I realized, you know, as I believe Governor Bashir did, this is way bigger than that. This doesn't matter about my reelection. My leadership needs to be based on the facts and what's best for our our citizens.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and and I do I do think that there's a direct cor- correlation between how seriously uh, elected leaders take this uh, disease and, and the population's uh, you know reaction to it. So I, I think that that's got a lot to do with it, and how very seriously that it's been taken there in Woodford County. But, you know, despite, I would say, like a very tenacious fight about uh, against COVID-19 throughout the pandemic, Woodford County did experience a bit of an outbreak in the past few weeks. Uh, you know, I saw their numbers go, go up quite a bit uh, higher than they've ever been uh, in just the past few weeks. And, and, you know, we had a little bit of trouble setting up this interview because you're in quarantine right now because there's yeah. I mean, there's some stuff going on uh, in your in your kid's school or, or you know, whatever. Uh, you know, this pandemic is tenacious. Uh and I'm just interested to hear you say how have you dealt with the fact that this pandemic has gone on so much longer than we ever expected that it would.
2: So, you know, you, you mentioned it, but um one of the things that I think um some some people in the political sphere, some people that are that are high profile individuals, you know, they they kind of want to keep this information close to the best or yeah, everybody's everybody wants to be private about their health care decisions. Right. But with a pandemic, it's, it's public health. It's, it's kind of open. So for example um, you know, my kids are in school and Woodford County has kept our schools open. We were, we were open since January of this year. Um, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but our our schools bought in with our County government and our health department, they have a really good plan. In fact, our health department was, Um, nationally recognized for some of the in-school contact tracing that they developed, where kids sit, how you can identify who was really affected. So you don't have to quarantine whole classes. And so my, my kids went to school, you know, they, they got exposed, they came home and they exposed us. And so we are just like every other citizen. We're listening to the quarantine orders and we're staying home. And so I've shared that with the community. I went to our first open testing event that we were providing free testing for the community. Uh, on Monday. And I just told everybody, Hey, look, I got exposed. I'm being tested. If you get exposed, this is what you need to do. So, you know, if you can go to work, go to school, go to church, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been talking about COVID every week on this podcast, so we don't want to talk about it the whole interview. So switching gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, you moved from the state legislature to the county courthouse a few years ago, a move that several Democrats in the legislature have attempted Tell us a little bit about that transition and how you're experiencing the difference between being a legislator and serving as a judge executive.
2: So I think people have this idea when you're in politics that, and you're a politician that you have all these ambitious goals. And, and I, I readily admit that I know a lot of folks in the arena, they want to be governor. They want to be this. I never thought about being state representative ever. And our <laughs> state representative stepped down. I had my own law practice. And so I was my own boss. So I could take off the campaign. And um, I had support from the community. You know, the 56th district is a Whitford County centric seat. Uh, Whitford County is two thirds of the district. And so I knew that I had a good shot. And when I went for it, again, I, I, everything is about timing and politics. So I had the opportunity. I, w- I went for it. And I really, really love serving in the General Assembly. But Frankfurt politics is becoming increasingly more toxic. That takes a toll on me personally. That takes a toll on my family. Uh, When I started running for office, the average house race cost about $30,000 to run. That's over $100,000 now to run for a state house seat that represents 45, roughly 1,000 people. The money in politics is absurd. The toxicity... You know, the, the self-interest, the special interest, the self-dealing that goes on in Frankfurt. I mean, we've got a mess there. I, I worked hard to try to raise issues and, and make things happen and, and be a voice that could, you know, at least elevate some of the issues I thought were important. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be I don't want to play that game. I wanted to come home. I wanted to be close to my young family um, and my judge executive at the time. I mentioned him already. He was a beloved figure named Bear, and he called me in his office one day, which is now my office, and he said, um, James, I want you to run for, for judge executive, and I had never thought about that, just like I had never thought about state representative, um, and I realized that was going to be a great transition for me, and so I ran for it. The people of Woodford County supported me, and uh, here I am. Uh, the judge executive's job is a day-to-day job. I mean, you are, we are running a county government with a $31 million budget and 120 employees. So it is, it is all the time on, on deck, you know?
1: Yeah, we, we've talked to a lot of Democrats on this podcast and, you know, we've talked to them all about serving in a a super minority, I guess. And, um, it sounds like it would be really tough to do. And I think it's also important that you brought up how much it costs to like run these campaigns and. how that really keeps a lot of people from wanting to do it. I've, I'm an attorney in Louisville and I've seen like judicial campaigns just explode and how much they cost to run. So that's definitely something that I think it's important for people to know. And and Um, that's,
2: that's intentional. That's intentional by the big money machine because they, number one, if, if it costs a lot of money to run a race, well that keeps poor people out. Uh, mm-hmm. If it costs a lot of money and we're going to attack your character instead of your policy positions, then that's going to keep good people out because nobody likes to go through uh, what I went through. Yeah. When Mitch McConnell and the Republican machine through five hundred thousand dollars at a special election in 2013. Good people are fewer and farther between. We saw Kelly Flood step down from the house this week. She's not going to run again. She's mm-hmm. the best there was. And, you know, I, I don't know why. I imagine uh, after 13 years, she's ready to retire. She's she's put up her fight. Um, But but the whole goal of the money in politics is to keep good people out because good people can't be bought and they can't be used.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking about elections a little bit more. So, you know, you won all your elections as a Democrat. And until the 2020 election, Woodford County had elected Democrats at the state and county level, despite often voting for Republicans in federal races. But, you know, there's been this huge partisan realignment in Kentucky since 2016. So what does being a Democrat mean to you today?
2: So in in 2016, I ran with Trump on the ticket, and but but I ran my race locally. I mean, I'm born and raised here. I've had three addresses my whole life on the same street in this house that I'm that I'm at right now. Wow. Um. And and so I'm local, so people know me. They know my family. I can do six degrees of separation with anybody in this county and pretty much figure out who you're related to. So people couldn't make it a a purely partisan thing, but. But you know the the floor in Woodford County is pretty much forty Re- percent. You can run you can run this mouse, and it'll get forty percent of the Republican vote if it has an <laughs> its name. That's sad, first of all. Uh, but but you know what what a Democrat means to me, and and this is the way that I look at it. And and some of it is idealistic, and some of it may even still be a little naive. But I want to try to change the party from the bottom up. I, I, I want I want to try to. Uh, infuse some energy and excitement and ideas into the party. I think the Democrats have a huge opportunity to take some high ground right now. The Republicans have abandoned traditional high ground, conservative uh, fiscal policy. I mean, when Trump was in office, they spent money like crazy. Um, science, public health. I mean, this pandemic has proven that they are literally willing to give up the, the high ground of trying to keep people safe. And, and so I think being a Democrat to me means that uh, in some ways we, we need to be anti-party too. Um, I never liked being told by party leaders, party bosses, local, state, or otherwise uh, what to do or how to do it. And, and I think we as Democrats, we need to um, respect and honor that, that our candidates are individuals and we should be very diverse. And we should let that diversity speak for itself um, and, and let our local uh, primaries decide what what who's going to be the candidate and, and what are going to be the issues. But but a Democrat to me, you know, the, I mean, the, the the typical bread and butter issues of, you know, recognizing that the economic system is fairly rigged against those in the, the lower quartile uh, of our society, recognizing that our justice system does not serve us all equally. Recognizing that uh, the constitution was started out uh, for a very select few of elite in our country and we're trying to expand that to be a document for all. I mean, these are the type of things I think as Democrats um, we believe in. And I also think that again, there's some high ground out there, public health, I don't. I don't know why we can't be the party of fiscal responsibility and taking care of people as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, we've talked on here about you know your district is Woodford and then parts of Franklin and a little piece of Lexington. Um, but as you said, you know, it is a Woodford County district. So as someone who had success winning an election as a Democrat outside of one of Kentucky's urban centers what advice would you have for potential candidates who would like to run as Democrats in 2022?
2: So, I mean, you know, I I really, I, I, I don't like cookie cutter. I don't like boilerplate. I don't like templates. So I I want people to be themselves. And if you are from a community, um, dig into that, those foundations and those roots. And again, use your connections. Be, be who you are to the people that you know. And, and I would say this, don't run because you want to run and make a difference run because you know enough people that are going to support you to win candidates and campaigns are really not as much about policy as they are about people. Um, again, I was able to, um, I was fortunate. I was lucky. I was blessed to be able to bridge the dividing and probably get some Republicans even to vote for me. Um, but at a minimum, they folks weren't able to demonize me and and to, to make a cookie cookie cutter Democrat. Uh, you know, they they said that um, Obama you know called me to ask me to run when I ran the first time. I mean, how cool would that have been, right? I've never met any president, Democrat or Republican. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I, I really think that that we need to identify these folks in local communities that have deep rooted connections that can overcome the noise because the noise is so loud.
0: And that's very true. And and I I completely agree with you about your, you know, campaigns are much more about Mm -hmm. people than about issues. Uh, most of the time, uh, you know, I think that there needs to be a healthy balance, but I think recognizing that people are more, uh, most voters respond to the people they know rather than the things they actually believe in. Uh, and that's, I, I think something that's really true. Um, but, you know, you, you've talked quite a bit around the fact that, you know, you have a young family, um, you know, you had a law practice, uh, you know, you've been in public service for eight years, um, you're still a, a, a pretty young person. Uh, and, you know, you've got a young family. So, so talk to us a little bit about that balance. Uh, how do you serve the folks of Woodford County, while raising a family and then trying to establish yourself uh, and, and, you know, your career whenever you want to stop doing public service?
2: Well, and and Robert, if I w- could return just a moment, so so don't get me wrong, you you have to have policy and, and positions, but if you can't talk to the people because you don't know them, then they don't care what your positions are; they're going to make that up. So you, you got to have substance too. Don't get me wrong, but but as far as having a young family, family to me, and this is this sounds cliche. A lot of people say it, but it's everything. I mean that's what I love about being back in a in at home in a small town. So I live downtown. I, I work around the corner, a few blocks from the courthouse. That's where my office is. My kids are young, uh, five, four, and one, uh, two boys, and then a and a baby girl. And Robert, I know you have a, a baby girl, right? Uh, I sure just do. got a one year old.
0: Yeah, uh, is yours walking yet?
2: Yeah, oh yeah, she's two. She's I mean, she's running my cell phone, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay i thought you said she was one okay yeah uh my my, uh,
2: i'm sorry she she's uh september 24th she'll be two so i i call her one because you want to keep them as young as you can right yeah no Mm -hmm. i gotta
0: get myself in that mindset now we're still talking months here you know we're at like 13 months and so yeah she's 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 thinking about walking
2: yeah absolutely so i you know for example Um, I take my kids to preschool every morning. I drop my daughter off at daycare. I come back. I go to the courthouse. Inevitably, I've forgotten something, right? You know, and so I, I just hop in my car, go home, get it, take it to wherever I need to go. And these are things where I get to interact and I get to see my family and be around them so much more than if I was plugging away eight hours a day in the law office in Frankfurt and then doing all the responsibilities Uh, you know, January through April as state representative, you are out, you're out of pocket Mm -hmm. if you do the work and you do it right. And so for me, you know, I I put in a ton of hours here in the community as judge executive, way more than I did state representative, but I can easily always just come home and be around my kids and my family. And at this time in our lives, Robert, you know this, I mean, this is so wonderful. No matter what's going on, I come home and those smiling faces, even if they're crying, it's wonderful. You know, it's it's just a wonderful thing. So I, I couldn't do it in any other any other position unless I was going to run for another local office. Uh, but but being home and literally being physically located here in Woodford County all day long is is a blessing.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you know you're in the perfect position for you right now, and I, I think that's something that's important too. Is if you want to be in public office, also finding like the right fit for that as well. All right. So before we let you go, how can people learn about you and how can the folks in Woodford County support you as we move forward towards 2022?
2: Sure. Well, I will take the opportunity on my old Kentucky podcast to announce that I'm running again for judge executive. <laughs> All of right. Nice. Um, everybody around town knows it because I tell them that, but I'm not <laughs> that official or public, but but uh, I, I'm. This is my first podcast as well, so I'm. I'm truly honored to be on here. I think it's great. But but if people want, you know, um, I, I would encourage folks check out what we're doing in Woodford County. Check out my Facebook page at Judge Executive James K. Check out the Woodford County Health Department Facebook page. Uh, check out Woodford County Government's Facebook page, which didn't exist before I was Judge Executive, and our website um, is full service. It's it it can give you all the information. Um, I've, I've got a website, votejamesk.com. My campaign really isn't up and running because I'm focused on my family and government, but it will be, uh, soon. So, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter. You can call me my, my cell phones out there. If you live in this community, you can come to my door. So, um, yeah, that, that's how accessible I am.
1: Well, it may be your first podcast, but that was our first podcast. Campaign announcement. I think. <laughs> yeah, we had to word it kind of
0: funny because we didn't know if you're running for re-election or not. So now, now we know. Yeah, that's great to know. Uh, yeah, and and it's good news because we really do think that you're doing a great job out there in Woodford County. We think that everybody in and uh, you know Versailles in Woodford County uh, has always been a very impressive place to us. A lot of good folks have come out of there and represented that community, Um, and and it certainly has good leadership, and it deserves more good leadership, so happy to hear that you're doing that. Uh, Best of luck, and thank you for joining us.
2: And thank you, Robert, and I think we were at UK at the same time. I kind of admired you from afar. You might have been a few years behind me, but... uh, you're an am- ambitious guy, and, and, and I, I remember you back in those days, man. You,
0: you, you probably saw me lose a lot of student government races, so that's uh, – <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I supported you, if good, I recall. Good,
0: good, good. Excellent.
2: Jasmine, nice to meet you.
1: You too.
0: All right. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice – We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.